Today I'm talking with David Kidder, who is the CEO of Clickable. Um, and uh, David's located in New York, and Clickable is a pay-per-click company. So, um, David, maybe you could take it away and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, great to uh, connect with you. Um, based in New York City, uh, the founder and CEO, as you mentioned, of Clickable, and uh, we like to think of ourselves as the kind of Apple of online advertising platforms. We're basically a a, um, uh, a very simple tool that takes the complexity and time out of managing online advertising across all the major uh, networks, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, and others. So, and we're about to expand that into the social space. So it's really exciting. About 130 people in the company. We'll add about 100 people in the next 12 months. So it's growing very fast. Uh, raised a bunch of VC money, about $20 million from some of the best, best VCs on the East Coast and in, in Silicon Valley. Same venture capitalists buying Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and others. So we have great contacts uh, on both coasts, and we're growing fast. So it's a lot of fun. Um, this is my uh, third company, so I've been building companies since I graduated from university. Um, I built a mobile advertising firm, built a 500-person uh, interactive agency in the 90s, and really enjoyed um, uh, people and building teams and, and uh, you know, creating value both for my investors and for the uh, employees of the company and uh, had a great time doing that. So, um, Also, I have uh, two kids, uh, uh, two-and-a-half and, and four-year-old boy, Jack and Stephen. been married for about eight years to Johanna Zelstra, who's my wife. She's uh, Dutch. And uh, we have a third kid due, due in uh, August this year, which is a total surprise and <laughs> wild. And then I um, have a couple side hobbies. One is a book series that I write called The Intellectual Devotional, and uh, we do that with Rodale, and it's basically a, a book series. Our fifth book comes out in the spring and uh, May. Uh, it's basically five-minute-a-day readings um, uh, to kind of renew your mind. Um, and two of the books have been near time bestsellers. It's been a lot of fun. And then I have a um, nonprofit called Good Ads, uh, G-O-D-A-D-D-S, which is a partnership with uh, GE and NBC and Millennium Promise, which helps use corporate branding to market cause products. So from malaria nets to inoculations to uh, medics, uh, we help use uh, big branding dollars uh, to kind of greed what is good, so to speak. And we use banner ads and traffic and celebrities to to uh, move attention into actual people buying or purchasing or endorsing uh, cause products that uh, actually do you know real meaningful good every single day. So those are the big things. Clickable and the book series, the intellectual devotional, and good ads are kind of professionally speaking and, and nonprofit. And then family, kids, the rest of my life. So it's it's a lot and fun, and it's uh, a really uh, a very uh, blessed and grateful life. And so you sleep two or three hours a night? <laughs> Pretty much. I, uh, there's not a lot of sleep. It's uh, especially my wife right now. She's uh, on our third floor, and I'm on the second floor with the two little kids. So it's uh, it's probably on average. I mean, um, probably five. I would say is probably good. Good solid number. And so you you live in New York City. You, we I lived in New York City for about ten years, and uh, we bought a uh, old Victorian home outside the city, about 10, eighteen miles outside the city in Westchester, uh, um, just north of the city. And uh, we we re- rebuilt and restored this old old Victorian for about a whole year, about five six years ago. And so now with two little boys running around crazy, we, um, we've had a, a great time having light space and air and having them enjoy that. And so we have two dogs. And it's, it's a nice break from the city. I mean, I drive to the city every day. It takes me about 45 minutes. And um, I get kind of some quiet time in the car and listening to blogs and, or podcasts and doing phone calls. So, uh, so by the time I get home, I'm fully engaged with kids. And, and then I'm usually with them until about 9, and then they go to sleep, and then I work from 9 to 1 usually. So 
It works. And, you're, and, and you didn't want to stay in the city? I mean, is there a reason why you didn't stay in the city with kids? Um, you know, I, I love the city, and I miss the city a great deal. Um, I'm here every day, so I kind of get my fix. Um, but the truth is I think I want my kids to um, not experience – I think they always have the option to move to the city, but they, they don't have the option not to experience – you know, outdoors and cut grass and sports and those sort of things in a different way. And I, I, I don't want uh, my desire to live in the city to, you know, take away from their, you know, gr- you know, their growth experience, you know, outside of a metropolitan environment. Um, that's an option they can choose later in life. Cool. And, I, and it's something we might change our mind on, but for right now with little kids, and it's, it works out really well. But you have a 45-minute commute each way. Yeah, it's actually um, can be depending on how uh, long you uh, leave yourself in the morning to leave early. You can get here quicker, but I'd say on average that's about the commute. Um, but my time is fairly well organized. I have an amazing assistant, uh, Susan Green, who used to work at AOL and was Bob Pittman's assistant and Mike Kelly's assistant for about ten years. And so she she makes every uh, every hour two by uh, you know booking things really tightly and organized and creating call lists. And so we get a lot done. And then you kind of get a chance to decompress between, you know, the office and home. So it's a nice break. Cool. Um, have you ever had a job? I've ever had a job. Um, there was a time after I sold my last – I started a company right out of college called NetX, which we built and sold over two years. And then I joined to uh, a roll-up uh, of, of kind of dot-com companies in the 90s backed by Omnicom, which is the largest agency holding company in the world. And um, so during that period, I was part of a team. And so that, to the extent that that was a job, or the closest thing I've ever had one to one, that three years, you know, as part of that team, um, I worked with that group and that board doing that roll-up. So uh, that was probably the closest I ever got. But I was very entrepreneurial, and I was an entrepreneur amongst other entrepreneurs of the management team. It was, uh, um, it was a lot of fun. It was wild times in the 90s in New York during the dot-com era. It was... Uh, very kind of uh, Studio 54, uh, big dollars and crazy. So uh, it was a great period to be uh, in the dot-com boom and uh, enjoy it. Did you retire as a billionaire? No, you know, I did make some money, which was great. Um, but, uh, no, I, I don't ever see myself retiring. I think uh, money is not the reason why I work. I, I, I love to create and innovate, and um, a lot of my um, travel in the world has kind of influenced uh, my belief on that we – have all, in a lot of ways, uh, if we have light, space, and safety, have already won humanity's lottery, and we have a responsibility to take risks. And I don't see myself stop to stop doing that any one time. And I'm not, I'm not building companies, you know, so that I have a specific outcome that makes you know me have more time for myself. I really want to create. So. And so, um, how did you, you? This is your third company. How did your first two companies do? So the first one, NetX, about 10 people, sold that to a, 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 a privately held company that was competing with PointCast back uh, and in kind of internal corporate communications. You, you know you can buy the PointCast domain now today for like $8,000. Is that what it is? It's hilarious. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah it gives you an idea of how long it's been. Uh, that was in 96, uh, 94, 96. Um, we sold um, Think No Ideas, which was this roll-up for, I think, 225 uh, to And that company is actually still around. It's called AnswerThink. It's public and it has about two, two, three thousand employees, and then um, um, you and that was fine. Two hundred twenty-five million. Yep, and then um, we did uh, my other my company called SmartRay, which is a privately held company. We had about forty people. We sold that for a little under forty million after the dot-com crash. So you know, had good solid stuff. There's no billion-dollar exits yet. I, I suspect that Clickable has a very good shot at doing that. Um, I think this will be the biggest company. Um, 
I've had a chance of being, you know, founding and helping build. So uh, we're on a very, very fast clip of growth. So adding, adding the scale we have. So um, I'm very excited about so building. So you, you did a company. point cast knockoff and you sold that for 225 million. No, no, the point that was it was actually um, in the 90s. Um, it wasn't. It, we were doing. Uh, the company that bought us, Target Vision, was doing communications inside of corporations at the desktop and TV level. And so they had a very big footprint of, of corp Fortune 1000 companies in the United States where they were the platform for internal corporate communications. And so PointCast was coming out at the desktop level, as you remember, giving news and corporate information as well as obviously you know, just general news. And so they bought my company, NetX, to help build the Internet platform oh, yes, to compete with wow. them. And um, and then I after about a year I left to go moved back to New York and or moved to New York and and uh, do the roll up um, that then became we we did a roll up from um, when I joined Redfoot and Public from 80 employees to 500 like in two years we bought like eight companies and it was a wild run and then, so, and then uh, I'm I'm really interested to understand I mean this is a, a really interesting perspective um, you've been through the the wild times of the dot com era and. Um, you weren't in, in Silicon Valley, but obviously you were, you were interacting a lot with those guys, and you're in the, the what I think of the deal capital of the world of New York. Yeah. Um, how was it? I mean, obviously we know today in hindsight, and this is ten years later, so it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, well, you know, those guys sucked and they were wrong, but nobody knew that back in the time. Um, yeah. How how did that feel when you were in it? Did you <laughs> did you doubt some of the stuff that was going on? I mean, wh- why was how were these things happening when there wasn't uh, a, a proper financial underpinning to it all? Like, how did it feel? Were, were people doubting that, or was everyone like, "This is the thing, and we're just going to go for it"? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think we we're pretty all wide-eyed. I don't think that people realize that we we're really in the first generation of that technology. So, um, the internet affected so many kind of public conscience minds, both privately and publicly, personally and professionally, that. You know, the hope was transformative across every sector. So you had everybody dazzled, whether it be a startup person right down to your grandmother. You know, you had everybody who was touching this technology. So um, I think that's why the accentuation of that, of that and the rise of those technology companies and the IPOs and stuff was so dramatic is that everyone wanted to be part of creating that and participating in that technology. It's not like, you know, nanotechnology or energy or, you know, derivative products where, you know, only 10 people know how to do it. Everybody understood it. And so um, very few technologies have that type of implication that are not just an investment. They're participating in investment. And that's why it got so kind of hyperbolic in its growth. Um, you know, and by comparison, you know, the dot-com boom looks like, you know, a small mistake compared to what Wall Street has done to Main Street. So um, it's important to have that context. That it was, yes, you know, it was a discrete financial over-accentuation of value. Okay, great. So, you know, they launched 500 IPOs and, you know, created, you know, half a trillion of value and, or trillion dollars in value and, you know, 75% of that went away. However, you know, you birthed, you know, very serious companies. You birthed Amazon, eBay, um, uh, Google, uh, you know, you, you built, you built monsters. Um, and you also invented the first generation companies to Facebook, like, um, the Globe and, uh, Six Apart, who hold those patents to those next generation technologies where, you know, people and adoption and behavior became real and, and did that. Um, and so I think that that first phase was a, was a much um, economic hothouse as it was art hothouse. And it really did incubate 
um, you know, what is now the, you know, platform you saw even this last week that it's the first year that there'll be more dollars spent digital advertising than analog. Um, you know, um, e-commerce is going to do, you know, project to do 259 billion in, in total sales on those platforms across and over the next five years. I mean, those are not, those are completely disruptive uh, shifts in behavior and technology and, and, and consciousness. that said that, um, in, the, in that first decade, we had, as you mentioned, eBay, Amazon, and Google, and a bunch yep. of others. And in this following decade, we've only really had Facebook and, and potentially Twitter. There hasn't been a ton more that's come out of the second decade compared to the first decade. Well, yeah, I mean, I would just, I mean, I would, or, I mean, Google really straddled the decades. I mean, Google was formed in 2001, 2002, and really went public in four or five. So Google was born out of that, um, which is you know, far and away, you know, the most dominant piece of technology ever created on the internet. Um, but Google was Google was formed in like ninety eight, ninety nine. Um, right? I think so. it was actually two thousand, two thousand one. Um, I mean, it was it was in a university at that time, but by the time it was actually scaling, I mean, it was two thousand one, two thousand four. I think the revenues grew from like you know sub a million to fifty, sixty million, and then after they created the auction, the PPC at two thousand four is when they really exploded. But that was being incubated and started right you know after the whole kind of you know, Yahoo had gone public, GoTo had gone public, you had all these companies that were doing um, kind of directory-based uh, search indexes. They just reinvented the second generation. So I kind of put them in that next bucket. Um, but Chris is right. Chris is actually a friend and a neighbor to us here in Silicon Alley. He's right across the street. Um, I could probably see his office through here. But, um, you know, Chris is, Chris is right in the sense that, you know, we have, you know, you know formative cultural and business changing businesses and then you know but you still have businesses that are emerging you know youtube is a transformative type of success that was not a fluke um you have smaller less capital intensive businesses that may have not moved the economic needle but they've moved behavior and so um the economic reward for behavior shift amazon ebay google have been great but there's also tons of other applications that maybe have not been worth a billion dollars but have created you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of behavioral value. I mean, take Craigslist, for instance. Craig Numero created that business, um, um, and he's doing 50 to 100 million in revenue, and he destroyed a, you know, $5 billion business of the Yellow Pages. So, I mean, they are... Well, these not are, just Yellow Pages, then yeah. Papers as well. I mean, I mean, yeah, that's a great point. So as much as, I mean, as much destruction and disruption as it's been economic value being created, ideologically speaking, the stack was created in the first iteration, and now everybody's building on the stack, uh, building on APIs, open, less expensive businesses to create, maybe less economic reward at the exit, but still, I mean... Huge disruptive values being created all the time. Location-based well, technology. I mean, the disruptive value is like maybe 10% of what was there before, right? I mean, Craig Newmar, 50 to 100 million a year, but if he's taking out newspapers and uh, yeah. and yellow pages, then yeah. he's the, the, the revenue he's generating. I mean, I guess it's it's value that's going out to society that instead of being captured by corporations. Yeah, it's um, and maybe that's not a bad thing. I think that's um, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing personally. I think it, that's that's the change of. Kind of, I don't, I don't think there's dynastic evolution in technology. I think it's disruptive and destructive technology evolution. And so it's, the, the, the fact that, you know, the, those mainstay companies who own media, or own knowledge, or, you know, um, those sort of things necessarily deserve or are in a position culturally um, to maintain it. I think that destruction happens much faster. So the idea that, you know, suddenly the newspapers are the ones that figure out how to save their business before it drives off a cliff, that's a, that's a myth. You know, and that's just not necessarily, I mean, you could have all the major newspapers drive off a cliff with no answer to the problem. And it could take a 10-year window to actually fix that problem. 
And it may not happen because, you know, all the journalists figure out how to monetize their, their skill. It could have to happen because a technology innovation like the iPad picks it up and runs with it or the Kindle. It could be hardware related. So I just think we're in a, in a highly volatile, high vibration moment where, you know, the, the owners of, you know, historical economic value for information, knowledge, technology, um, um, are on the hook for solving these problems, but necess- not, are unlikely to solve them because of cultural and uh, cultural bias and uh, talent. Hmm. Um, do you think you would be uh, starting your third startup of um, Clickable today if you had been born in Nebraska and grew up in Nebraska? Um, well, it's av- it would be available to me. I think that the distance and proximity um, is not an impediment to starting companies. You know, I love Mark Andreessen always says it's a great. It's always a great time to start a company, good or bad markets. Um, I do. I do believe that location um, definitely influences the speed in which you can grow a company. Um, it, you, you need to put yourself physically into a place, a grid, so to speak, um, of internetworks and. Um, a graph, so to speak, where the connections and, and the relationships you have actually accentuate your business. Um, New York is a great place for that. Silicon Valley is a great place for that. I don't, I don't think there's, there's other markets, but there's very few that are like those too. Um, um, you know, they make you go faster. Your, 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 your interconnections are going to be greater and therefore relationships in, um, are formed faster and influences, um, um, attention is provided, um, more discreetly, and you grow faster. You're the one to get the deals first. You're, you know, their network values. Um, you know, there's, I was at TED this year. There was a great uh, talk about is you know is a, can you is can you, is obesity um, viral? Can you actually catch obesity as a, almost like an allergy? And they looked at all the data, and statistically, you you can. I mean, your friends and their friends influence your weight. You know, so in the same sense, your success is influenced by you and your friends. And so it's the same concept in you know tipping point. There are mavens in your life. There are maven individuals. There are maven places to live. There are maven companies that can transform your entire outlook of your business. I've experienced that, and I try to be one myself. Um, but it's uh, very important where you are. So. It's available to you if you want to live in Nebraska. I've, I've heard from people that have been at TED that they say that it's not um, like you, you don't actually get to meet people that much. That it's more just like you're sitting there for the presentations and then you're running off to the next presentation. And yeah, there's a lot, lot, lot going on. Um, I should note that I'm friends with the, the founder and his wife, uh, so I'm biased. But um, I think it's the greatest um, networking event that there is in the U.S. I mean. There's no, no other place where you can roam around uh, under security and see Bill Gates just hanging out, walking around, um, Jeff Bezos, some of the most powerful people in media. So just, and the talent in the room, the people, is absurd. I mean, I was sitting down having a um, cup of coffee by myself, and a woman sat down next to me, just talked for a half hour, who had met – I did a TED at University talk two years ago on a concept called the Board of Life, which we can talk about later. But, um, and she came up and talked about how they influenced her a great deal. Her name is Amanda Briggs. And she's like the chief, you know, trend spotting officer for all of Nike. Like, where else do you meet people like that? And she's there, and they're there for four days. People don't just come and speak and leave. They're there fully engaged, eight, ten hours a day. And you could meet anybody in the world who's there. It's just incredible. So people like who on the outside like to criticize it sometimes for being a little elite or um, less informative, and they're just wrong. It is everything it's talked up to be. It is extraordinary. I host a but dinner so party. While you were there, you did actually go and get to meet a lot of people. It wasn't just Oh, it's networking on steroids. It's so powerful. I mean, I have every day I have breakfast and lunch. I actually invest in, in it quite a bit. I host a dinner party with 
two other uh, founders, founding friends, Jack Myers and Mark Sinadell, the latter's. Um, and we host a dinner, for our dinner party of you know 200, 120 people. Um, uh, it's called the Tedster New Yorkster dinner, just to just to kind of do a smaller group and, and get connected. And it's worth it because um, you're building relationships. And after doing it for four or five, six years, it, it's just it's just access and relationships, and it's it's very very authentic beyond the learning, which is extraordinary. It is it is that. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it, and I've been to a lot of conferences, and I do still do it. But uh, it's very, it, I think it's one of the best. So did you go up and shake hands with Bill Gates? Um, I have about two years ago when he did, actually, no, you, you know, the last one, 2008. Um, but, yes, I, I mean, I'm not on a first-name basis with him, but uh, he, uh, he's, he is very accessible and, and present, and he's, he's an extraordinary man. Was he there for the whole four days? Four day? Yep, yep, the whole time. As is, I mean, did he like yep. look down at you and say, "Well, you know"? <laughs> no, he's actually incredibly present. He comes across as uh, quite quite a sage and 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 uh, kind and um, thinking about very big ideas. And it's, you know, he's very direct and very confident those sort of things. But he's he's got a very kind soul, and he's um, he's but he's on it. He has there's a lot of kind of urgency and importance to his work and for the Gates Foundation and, and energy and those sort of things. So. You know, he's a kind, but he's also a serious man, and so he comes across that way and his presence that way, but you know, he's walking around smiling, he's got a great sense of humor, and he's accessible. And so, uh, but I think people, um, you know, are, um, give kind of the more celebrity personalities there, the artists, the actors, the CEOs who are more well-known, um, their space, and so they get a chance to actually rest and, and learn and that sort of stuff, but it's available to you if you wanted to, uh, to meet them. So, um, actually, I just want to ask you just a yeah. little bit more about, so just being in New York, do you, do you feel that's given you access to more deals and more info? You're around the mavens, you're obviously networked in. Has that, so you, you really feel that strongly has helped you a lot, has it? Yeah, definitely. I have, you know, I've invested, I, I think, authentically in building very good relationships with um, people who, you know, are doing important work. And, um, and I try to cultivate that a lot. Um, again, you can't fake that stuff. It has to be real. Um, and then you know, but my some my my I, th- I feel like I have some of the best venture capital money in New York with, with the Union Square Ventures, Fred Wilson and Albert Wenger, and Brad Burnham. And then I have the Founders Fund on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, which are kind of um, um, the guys the, who founded uh, PayPal, formed a venture capital fund, and are the key VCs behind um, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and Slide and, and a bunch of great companies there. So I have good access on both the East and West Coast. They're very different places to build companies. New York is very media, advertising rich, but the entrepreneurial community is very strong. And so um, we're still a distant second from Silicon Valley, but I'll have to say that the startup community here is very vibrant. It's growing very fast. Um, we're probably second only to Silicon Valley, and I don't. I think there will never exceed Silicon Valley. It's just different, but it's still it's one of the best, second best places, so to speak, to, to build, build companies perhaps. Um, and uh, we're getting there. Um, Silicon Valley is obviously has lots and lots and lots of uh, people who have built and sold companies, better entrepreneur base, better technology. But uh, um, I'll just say that I, I rarely have to travel. I've, I, the good point is that you know, in this next generation of technology with media and advertising driving these conversations, that's all done in New York. And so all the major deals I do are in the city which is a huge competitive advantage over the Valley. But when I have to go do partnerships like with Facebook and other places, I have to travel. I have to go see the platform companies out there. So another way to describe it is they are building a stack of technologies and we're building on top of it. 
now they're, they're both expressing different types of value, um, but they also are unique and discrete in how they create it. So um, I'm very bullish on New York and, and where does it's going. Mean, I mean, if they're building the stack and you're building the on top of that, does that mean they're the ones that get the billion-dollar valuations? You get the $100 million valuation? Um, it's possible. I, I, I think it's um, um, a function of both the valuation of the company or both, uh, both revenue and um, you know behavior. And so as people switch behavior, into your network, there the stack becomes less important, um, but the, the stack is always important from a kind of core IP value. So um, we'll see how that plays out. I mean, um, there are um, there's a great paper that I read that really shaped my thinking on just business and where it's going. It was in February 2006. It was called Eager Sellers and Stony Buyers, and it was in Harvard Business Review, and it described market friction. And so there's always an incumbent and a competitor in every marketplace. And so the incumbent has a huge advantage over the competitor in the sense that they actually provided statistics to prove this. So take Google versus Yahoo or, you know, something as simple as insurance, you know, Allstate versus Geico or, you know, detergent, Cheer versus Tide, it doesn't really matter, um, Dove soap versus, you know, you know, Old Spice, whatever. The point is that um, to get someone to move from one behavior to another, you need to convince them that there's a better ROI, there's, it's, it's unique, it's different, and it creates a lot of you know, liquidity for them. So that's a natural 3x hurdle. But this, this paper actually proved that there's another 3x hurdle that's compounding. So there's actually a 9x hurdle between Google and Yahoo, you know, Geico versus Allstate, Tide versus Cheer, all those things. And that compounding second variable is user behavior. Okay? So the point is that it's extremely hard to get customers to switch to what you're offering. And so the only way to really defeat market friction is through cost. You can do it for free. You can make it easier, simpler, or you can do it for them. And so you've got to create a transom by which behavior and trends and stuff switch. And so a way to think about that is, you know, if you're in the switching business and you can get people to switch behaviors to your product, which is kind of like built on top of the stack, you can create tremendous, tremendous value. Um, if you own the incumbency and you're building on the stack, then you, the stack has more value. And so depending on the marketplaces where if you're in the stack versus the user experience, um, you know, you can create billions or hundreds of millions of value depending on how valuable that is to the marketplace. And so, you know, another way of saying this is it's better to build painkillers than vitamins, okay? Vitamins are elective, painkillers are required, Painkillers are worth a hundred times more than a vitamin company, and you have to be able to solve these problems simply, defeat the friction, and create meaningful value so the customer switch to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, has that guided your business philosophy? Absolutely. I um, I'm in the painkilling business. <laughs> solve. I go into huge marketplaces where there's lots of pain, and I try to create simple, beautiful answers to that pain, and I try to create um, such, you know, demonstrable value that can be easily understood. And, um, I guess the way you're saying it is what we would say from direct response is we, in direct response, we know we want to sell, um, we want to sell a solution to a, a, a painful problem. We don't want to sell a preventative. Preventatives yeah. are real nice, but people don't spend lots of money on yep. preventatives. They spend money on cures. Yep. That's a great, that's, a, that's a, just a, a twist on that, or it's a very similar way to express the same point. Yep. Hmm. Um, and certainly want to talk about Clickable, but if we, just before we do, um, I'm interested to understand your thoughts on, on how you took financing. Um, you're obviously a guy with a lot of options, and you chose to work with Fred Wilson and Union Square Ventures. Um, you, you're working with uh, the guys out in Silicon Valley. Why did you pick 
effectively blue chip money rather than cheaper money because I'm sure you have a lot of cheap money around here too. Well, um, Fred and Albert and Brad at the USV are incredibly pro-entrepreneur. They understand that they're in the talent business. Um, and as much as, you know, they have, they're very experienced, so they've kind of been in this business for a long time, and um, they're very different from the Founders Fund. The Founders Fund is young guns, young entrepreneurs who are also pro-founder, but I would just say that in both instances, our third VC, by the way, is uh, Firstmark, which is formerly um, um, uh, Pequot uh, and Ruth Rick Heitzman. And so all, I would say all three funds who are involved with us all understand that building companies is uh, an art than it is a science. It's, it's very difficult to do it well. And so um, they've all built and sold companies. They've, many of them have operated businesses. And so um, they're so pro-entrepreneur and they understand the complexities. It takes a long time to build a company that you know they're going to be there the whole path. And they're also very connected. And so between being connected and having a long-term vision of building great value gives you, um, you know, enough – or realize it gives you enough air room, so to speak, at the board level to um, – deploy capital and, and spend money well um, towards solving these problems. And so they're not impatient, and they're with you. And I think I, I've, I had a good fortune of working with them, um, and I, had, I did have a lot of choices, quite frankly. And I also did take, in some instances, a lower valuation um, to, to work with them because it's, it's better to win well with all your investors intact who are believing in you and get the win, so to speak, and solve those problems than it is to, you know, go for a massive valuation um, and um, and not have your investors come along with your own success and be helpful to the business. So, but you know, you're, you're in yeah. you're in Manhattan. There's plenty yep. of old money there. There's yep. uh, there's the Vanderbilts. There's the uh, Rockefellers. You know, why not? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I would imagine with the networking you've done, you probably know some people from the Rockefeller yeah. family. Why not get some of those guys to give you money at a at a lot cheaper rate? Kind of set their expectations in advance. Like, okay, Rockefellers, you know going to get this money back for five or ten years, you may lose it all. Um, I'm already networked in enough so that I can replace yeah. the networking that the, 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 the blue chip VCs have, and we'll just do this this way, and that way you'll make a lot more money, and so on, and it'll be better for both of us. Well, there's, it's more than money. It's, there's more than money. There's, uh, there's incredible advice that comes with that. There's, there's uh, contacts that come with that. Um, there's accountability knowing that, you know, there's a positive pressure in the company. You don't want to let your investors down when they're, you know, reputational makers in the marketplace. Um, I think it's important that you have a board who's, you know, helping drive the business, that they're helpful in doing it. But we meet, you know, every month, and we're, I feel, and the company feels accountable to being a good steward of their capital. And we're a better company because of that. I wouldn't necessarily feel that, you know, if it was the Rockefeller money, that if we lost it, it would affect their life at all. But I know that the returns that, you know, Albert and Fred and Rick at Firstmark and the Founders Fund is on for, and they've entrusted that with me and my leadership, is real. And so I take it very, very seriously about how I'm building this company, that we are working in concert to create the greatest economic value for everyone around the table, all the employees, the investors, and their, their investors. And we're, we're a better, comp- better company as a result of that. Um, we've done this before. We're good operators. Our investors are not, you know, all over us. I would just say that um, that sense of accountability drives this business, and we're trying to create incredible economic value and market value for everyone. And so that that justifies a lower valuation because you think in the longer term the accountability will help you get there, and then just the resources that they bring to the table are going to make it a lot better. Well, there's also, I mean, a lower valuation. I use that, at, you know, in one instance. It wasn't significant, by the way, but it is, you know, material. Um, 
let me just say this, is that VCs, when you, it's hard to build a company, first of all, but it's also hard to sell a company. It's hard to make money, period. I mean, you have to have the entire marketplace want to see you win. Your employees want to see you win. Your competitors, in a way, have to see you win. Your, your customers want to see you win. The company that buys you wants to see you win and be enriched. So you need incredible good fortune and luck and all those things stacked in your favor to build something in a really dominant marketplace. And so the, the conversations and the reputation that happen as a result of your VCs engage with you can transform the value because they're having the conversations with the investing community, with the corporate development officers of the companies. They'll sit down and look at their portfolio of investments and say, you know, it's almost like shopping. They're opening up and saying, here's what I've invested in. What do you like? And so if you're not part of that conversation and or you're not getting a, a disproportionate amount of kind of influence in your speed, you know, it does hurt the company unless you're just so good that you don't need any of that. And I think there are very few companies that are just so good that they don't need market advantage to grow fast. VCs don't make a company successful. I think they help make a company make better decisions and grow faster, and that's, that's it. It's still, at the end of the day, it's about the magic of the entrepreneurs, the magic of the culture, and it's the magic of the product at the right time in the marketplace. You know, that is the bet, but they do help, but they're not, they don't guarantee success. Raising money is just, is not a material, it's a material event, but it's not, it's not, it just means you can start building, but it doesn't, it's not a signal at any means that the outcome is going to be a success. It just, it's just empowerment. Interesting. Okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Clickable? So third company, um, you've really focused on building a strong team. You've, you've raised, um, a bunch of money. Um, tell us about about what you've been doing. Yeah, I mean, this our marketplace, uh, search marketing in general, as well as social, is a marketplace that is the is the p- players in the marketplace sell complexity. Um, so they go out and they basically most of the companies in the marketplace um, describe how hard it is to do this, and then they sell solutions to that difficulty or that that complexity. And, um, or they say that, you know, their knowledge, their technology is the only thing that can solve that complexity. And, you know, when I, between companies, when I did a lot of research, I thought, you know, this marketplace is just desperate for someone to come in and just speak truth, to speak simplicity, to, to, to speak empowerment and, um, transparency. And, um, I wanted to express a lot of my work experience and, you know, in personal and professional interest in those areas about creating a culture that's designed to solve those problems and to do it in a trusted way for companies. It's also huge, too. So there's a lot of room to maneuver. There's a lot of room to invent. It's not like one answer will solve every problem. You can have lots of different flavors, so to speak, or outcomes of the company that you can invent in that um, means that, you know, you can become something different and have great success um, as long as you have optionality in front of you. So, um you know, a company growing fast needs to go in and create a solution to a problem, but it typically takes three years to really figure out what you have. You go in with a bias and you try to solve that bias, but the truth is you need to build it backwards. You need to listen to the customer, look at the data, and build that. Let the marketplace rip the product out of you, and that's what we've experienced. And after about three years of working hard and solving that problem and be capitalized, you're going to discover what you should be in the first iteration of that company. We're kind of there now. We're hitting our stride, but it's it's a slog. It's it's complex and challenging and high risk. And there's a 
a lot of ways to kind of fumble the opportunity along the way. But if you keep the, keep the business um, solving those problems simple and you're not trying to boil the ocean, you can get to the answers and fast and uh, create a great company. You know, Clickable is, um, we, you know, I admire Steve Jobs a great deal. I studied industrial design and fine arts as well as engineering. So I, I love design and beauty in product, and we try to be, be that. We try to create a unique, powerfully simple um, user experience across all these networks so that anybody can come in and experience success, and we give we give them recommendations. So we, our engine, we have a very very sophisticated piece of technology called an ACT engine, which is about a hundred algorithms and a bunch of quants have built it. But it just you know basically tells you how you're doing and what you need to do every day, both quantitatively and qualitatively, and they're just simple recommendations. But it's the hardest thing in the world is to do something simple. It's easy to make things complex. It's easy to add features and buttons and switches and knobs and language and words. But it's very, very difficult to take those, those, those tools out and just give the answer and or... And, and so you focus on making it simple. Yes, um, which, which on, is a very, very hard work. Hmm? So how, how, does, how, do, how do I pay you? So you, I mean, I, you'll manage... Because I can obviously go to Google and Yahoo yeah. and Microsoft and run my campaigns myself. Yep. So what's the... How do I pay you? Is it a percent or is it a monthly? And then why would I pay you rather than go and manage them myself? Well, um, it's it's a percentage of your spend, typically two to five percent of everything you spend. On top, we 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 get compensated that way. So our our our, our your success is our success. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the reason why you use us is because we 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 save you time and defeat complexity. The type of people when we're chasing, you know, the hundred thousand companies spending between two and say a hundred thousand dollars a month in Google today, are doing five jobs. Okay, and so they have so much work to do that they have Google and Microsoft Excel open trying to figure out, you know, develop a beautiful mind, so to speak, on how to do this business well and make money, that it's a full-time job. It's actually two full-time jobs. We make that 15 minutes a day. And we, we produce a greater economic return because we disrupt the complexity and we do it for you. We grab one hand of the wheel, you have the other, you own your data, we give you a brand new simple experience. And we, you know, get set you on a new course. Like, I mean, customizing a Google pay-per-click campaign is pretty complicated, though. It's and very complicated, and we disrupt and that it complexity. Needs to be, it's very custom. Are you saying yep. you're doing it with systems rather than with people? Um, well, it's a balance of the two. I mean, we 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 give you the tools. We, our recommendations will say we'll actually tell you what to do. Like, we would look at your data and say you need to change your ad campaign. It needs to be changed the structure. You need to. Um, you need to add these keywords, you need to increase these bids, decrease these bids, all of those things, all through simple two, three-step wizards. So after the first month, you've kind of reshaped your entire campaign by in, you know, forcing these 100-plus algorithms representing best practices and, and, and the math, the bid management, against the campaign. So we, we are actually every single day running these analysis over your campaign data to enforce the best practices. So we're defeating the entropy. We're defeating... We're making the keeping the hundred balls in the air simple by 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 just holding them up for you. Now you have to do a little bit of work intellectually, um, but you the, the effort of identifying those problems and those two areas we solve for them. We also have a group called Clickable Assist, and if you just don't want to do it, we'll do it for you. So you could just hand it off to one of our our teams who has a bunch of technology that actually allows them to do this well. So there's a nice balance between you know. You having one hand of the wheel, us having the other, us having both for a period of time. It, the point is that it, it, we just we just defeat time and complexity. We make the average performance marketer bionic, better, stronger, and faster than they really are. 
It's like the, long, long term, like where do you end up? Like a few years ago, um, web analytics was a big area, and then Google just bought uh, yep. Urchin, I guess, and, and basically like re- removed yep. that space. Um, yeah. What's to stop Google doing that from AdWords, which, I mean, I guess we could assume will happen at some point. Maybe we, they won't be allowed to do systems to manage uh, Yahoo and Microsoft, but maybe they'll do it anyway, and then suddenly everyone just uses Google doing what you're doing. Well, the, well, they can do that today already. There already is choice. A customer, a co- any one of our customers is already using Google Directory. We're just, we're, we're just giving them a different experience. And so we're, we're, we work very much in concert with Google's goals, which is to, you know, make these advertisers better than they really are. And so we're solving some pain for Google, which is we're expressing AdWords and Yahoo and other places, uh, Microsoft and Yahoo, in a different way. And so we're giving the marketplace choice. We're giving the marketplace simplicity where there is complexity. And so, you know, Google's going to make the same amount of money, but we, we make marketers spend more money with Google more effectively, faster um, than anybody else in the marketplace. And so that's a good thing. That's a good thing for Google. It's a good thing for us. And we're rewarded by that economically. We're solving a major market problem for them, which is not everybody can be successful at Google. We make more people successful at Google than Google can on their so own. What's a, what's a typical, like a, a, a real success story that comes through you? Someone spending 50 grand a month and you get them up to 150 grand a month? I mean, what, what's the it's not, it's not only just how much money they're spending. It's how effective their goal is being right. set. So it's, you know, I'm assuming, obviously, that's not branding driven, that that's, that's, uh, that's totally profitable. Yeah, it's, it's conversion driven. You know, what is their goal? I mean, it could be downloading a white paper, it could be selling a product. And so the conversion value, the ROI, or the effective, you know, cost per acquisition is one of the key metrics of this. But what's important in the marketplace is, is that where there's lots of people selling lots of complexity is to just simply ask the, ask the advertiser, you know, here's a wildly inventive question, you know, what is your goal? And accomplish that goal. 99% of the marketplace has simple goals. They're not, you know, my friend, you know, the founder of Zappos, you know, has a million products he's selling. That's complex. Most customers have less than 10. Can you make them successful selling less than 10 products, all tagged and, and optimized simply, and do it in 15 minutes a day as opposed to 10 hours a day? And we do that. And I think that that's, that's unique. And we're also independent. So we're a third-party company validating the ROI across the networks, which, you know, that's very critical is that we are transparent, uh, and we're trusted, and we're independent. And that's a very, very valuable thing for this marketplace to have is to someone saying, here's how you can be successful doing this simply and be objective, as opposed to the networks owning that relationship. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent distrust because the more effective and efficient an advertiser is in Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, um, the more money they make. <laughs> so you have, this, you, know, you have an opposed uh, market value with the advertiser and the network. Um, so what's and, a typical uh, client for you guys? Well, we, you know, someone's spending between two and say $100,000 a month in online advertising inside of Google, Yahoo, Microsoft. We have some customers, I mean, that's not the ceiling. I mean, that's the average. So, I mean, we can go way up and we have huge spenders and we also have smaller spenders. But I think that, you know, that kind of maybe the key um, KPI towards is, you know, are they selling, you know, do they have a complex goal or a simple goal? And again, 99% of the marketplace has a simple goal. And so it really allows us to chase almost the entire marketplace. While we're very disciplined in our targeting, we can provide value for lots of customers. But, um, I, I, you know, the spirit of this is I don't want to – this isn't a clickable commercial, this, this conversation. I think what I'm trying to do is, is seed how we think about the world and being – different and contrarian a little bit. You know, we're zagging, so to speak, where lots of companies are zigging. You know, we're, we're trying to disrupt 
the conversation in the marketplace on simplicity and transparency and community around solving these problems. And I think that our product is, I think, is probably the best in the world doing that today. And we want to, you know, while we're kind of a trusted and uh, so, uh, uh, let me let me just jump in because we're, yep, we're running sure. low on time. I want to yeah. um, yeah. go through a bunch of questions if yeah. you don't mind. Um, do you, you are you going to do you see yourself staying with search uh, or do you want to expand out to other types of inventory? We're definitely expanding. You're going to see announcements from us in social in the next you know two months or less. We're we're doing deals with every major social network. We're doing deals with real time networks. All those things. I can't speak to them, but they're you know they're confidential. But there's a lot of we're going wide. We're going to bring value across. And more you know, about all the types of inventory, say banners yep. or video or other stuff. Banners, social, local, mobile, the whole thing. So you, you basically you, you want to become an ad serving platform. I want to be. We want to be. We want to be the Apple of ad management platforms. Um, the ad, the serving piece is done as a kind of third generation technology. We want to sit. We want to be on the desktop of the marketer, helping them be great at this business. Um, so um, I yep. interviewed Frank Adante from the Rubicon project. Yeah, Frank's great. He's a friend. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Um, and he, the interview when we had it was about them building out an ad server to help publishers, and mm-hmm. um, that, that that was they were going to um, optimize. So I think their their cut was nine percent of the of the spend. Yep. Um, and and be able to opt- optimize and show ads more efficiently. Uh, yep. So it's slightly different to what you're doing. It's yeah, they're the publisher side, we're the advertiser side. Yep. An advertiser driven. Yep. Um, and I haven't spoken to Frank in a while, but um, I've seen just in the last couple of weeks they've made a big switch saying um, kill the mm-hmm. ad server like ad servers no more yep. I don't quite understand what's happened <laughs> there but it seems like they're making a pretty big change yeah um, and actually I'm going to be talking to Frank about it fairly soon I'm interested in what you think of that and how that relates to what you're doing and how what you're doing is different. They're, they're, they're unrelated I mean we are in a different marketplace they're in the display inventory or just the brand, the brand inventory of publishers and we're on the performance side of the marketplace for advertisers. So very, very different apples and oranges. Um, I'm not really close enough to display to, you know, give you a highly credible opinion, but I, I think, you know, Frank is smart um, and he's also got great investors behind him. So they're trying to, they're, I think what they're recognizing is that the publishers, the big, big publishers are taking back their inventory. Um, there's so much inventory. That I think it was like 2.7 billion display ads last year. And it's growing 10% a year. It's like Hubble constant, always growing, compounding. Is that there's so much inventory that pricing is going down. So even if you know Frank built the greatest serving technology, optimization technology in the world, and he's got very good stuff, there's so much volume through it that the, they can't affect pricing. So the point is, is how do you create pricing? You create scarcity. You have to take volume out of the inventory. And so um, those systems, better ad-serving technology and better targeting doesn't necessarily be make the – while it can make the ads better, it doesn't affect price. And so targeting – the best tech targeting technology in the world isn't going to necessarily over time going to be defeat the amount of impressions that are in the marketplace. I mean, if you have his, his system doing a good job optimizing and they're able to get a CPM from a dollar up to a dollar fifty by um, having yeah. a broader inventory of advertising to show, that's increasing pricing. I mean, even it, it is, but I mean, if, if, I'm, if I'm a premium, it's true. But if I'm a premium, if I'm a if I'm Time Magazine and I'm using Frank's technology or, or, or his competitors, and I can, you can increase that, that remnant inventory from $1 to $1.50, but I can also just stop giving you that inventory. I can just say, you know what? I'm going to just sell less inventory, but I'm going to sell for $20 CPMs. It, that's, that's the transformation is the price, is creating scarcity, selling less inventory in fewer places and selling it direct. 
that's transformative. And I think the trend at the large publishers is that. And so I think Frank is very smart. He's going to, he's going to find a way to create value at the highest leverage price of display inventory, both at a market position and a technology innovation. He's got a great board. So you don't have that problem because you don't have the, the inventory going wide. You just have to do a better job for the advertiser. That's right. We're in a very, very different marketplace. And, um, and um, we're, we're, we're both bringing simplicity to a complex problem, but we're doing it from very, very different inventory stacks and very different uh, type of owners, so to speak, advertiser versus publishers. Um, but I, I, you know, those, those guys are very clever, and he's a great. He's, one of his board members is a friend, Raj Kapoor from Mayfield, and he's. Uh, I, I would bet on them. So they're smart. Yeah, no, Frank's a great guy. Um, so let's say um, things work out really well for you, and um, you, you're growing. Who, who, um, who's the sort of company that ends up buying your company? You know, it's um, it's the type of company. There's, first of all, there's a lot in our space who could be potential owners. So there's a lot of kind of natural owners of this company. Don't, don't um, do what Tony Tony from Zappos does, where he says, "No, no, we're never going to get bought." Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> Tony's great, I don't by the way. Believe anyone when they say that yeah. anymore? I've, no, uh, I, I think that we will be. I think that we're, right now we're building a standalone company. You know, I think this company is scaling very, very fast, faster than I thought. It's. Uh, I think it's. We're, in fact, it's going it, to. Every month we go, we're growing, we're gaining momentum. It's not. We're not. We're not just building into the plan. I think it's going to be leveraged and compounding growth over the next three or four months. And then, who knows what's going to happen? But you know, we're unscheduled at 100 people in the next 12 months, and then beyond that, it could be a lot more. So I'm excited about that stuff. I, I, here, I would say this is that you know the purpose of clickable, and this is our, something I talk about every you know month with my whole whole staff is the purpose of click, clickable is to help companies survive and thrive by making online advertising simple. Our purpose is to put food in the table, is to allow them to hire people and grow. And so while we have lots of partners who can use us and potentially buy us, we'll never do anything that violates that truth about us. Our, our customer is the business who's trying to grow, to, put, to do, literally put food in the table. We talk about it testimonially every month. And so there's very deep meaning here. Um, there's meaning in our culture. And we have very clear values. There are three things that we believe in. The first one is this rule called the seven-to-one rule, which is we individually to each other and to our customers try to do extraordinarily more good than we do bad. And we admit that people, product, and data are not perfect. And we're incredibly honest and direct and transparent because there's no contempt in this culture. We are out there to solve these problems and do it transparently. Now, if you start, you know, that ratio starts to shift negatively, then you're probably not the right cultural fit. But that rule and that belief allows the spirit of this company to live out and with a lot of kind of forgiveness, but also excellence. Our second value is the word simple, is that everything we do has to be simple and beautiful. We have brilliant engineers here. We could build features forever. But if it's not simple and beautiful from our legal contracts to our emails to our product experience, it's creating friction. And so everything has to be... You'd like hanging with guys like Jason Fried. Yeah, exactly. And I'll, I'll say this last thing. Our third value is the word and... And it's a bridging word between two, two things that are typically opposed in companies. One is we, have, we love product. We have a huge product. We have 80% of our company's product. We're true SaaS, software as a service. You know, we have 80 engineers going to 150 this year. Um, now, I should say this, and we love sales. sales. We love to sell. We love the customers. We love listening to them. We love learning about it. We love closing deals. I spend 60% of my time sales. We're, we're, we're passionate about it because they inform us what we need to solve in that conversation. It tells us how good we are at doing it. And it allows you to build it backwards. It allows you to listen to the customer, look at the data, and build that. And so we're both those things, product and sales. And we're very, very good at that. We're, well, while we're good, transparent citizens of the marketplace, 
We're also very competitive. We're friendly, but we're competitive. We want to disproportionately win dramatically. And our sales culture and our product culture allow us to get to those answers faster because we're unbiased. And so those three things guide us, seven-to-one, simplicity, and the word and. And that living on our purpose allows us to get that answer faster and grow, grow more meaningful in the marketplace. So the natural owner question is, is to a company that is in concert with that purpose. Um, I don't want to sell the company for money and then see it die or go sideways. It needs to have that live out. Just like, you know, Tony, as you mentioned at Zappos, his purpose is, to, is customer service. What's the greatest company in customer service in the world? Amazon. That's why they got married in a high price because they believe similar things and that would be a very creative deal at a cultural level. Our culture must be in concert with our owner someday. And right now, I'm not interested in owner. I'm interested in building a great, great culture around that concept and uh, we're living it out. Um, we're pretty much out of time, but yep. uh, is there anything you want to add in that we haven't covered yet? Anything you want to would like to talk about? Um, you know, I I, I think that um, I, I mentioned this concept of humanity's lottery in, in the beginning of this thing. And I've been I've traveled to um, more than 25 countries, more well, far more than that, and I, I've seen a lot of abject poverty and a lot of sadness and a lot of opportunity. Um, and I think one of the things that I talk to my company about, and I think this is a good reminder for people, is that if your purpose is about money or opportunity or self-interest, then I think the kind of karma and good fortune behind you is, is going to be kind of wind in your face as opposed to your wind at your back. Um, I remind my team that as uh, we are not every single day walking six miles for water, um, we have uh, one humanities lottery. And that as a result of that, um, we should give back. We should be grateful. Um, we should be working hard. We have, a, we have a responsibility to take risks. And that, you know, frankly, these cultures, a lot of these companies, they have no risk. I mean, no individual risk. You know, they're not going to go hungry. They're not going to, you know, they're, you know, their whole job really is to see, you know, how successful or rich they can get sometimes. And I think that those are the wrong reasons. Um, I think that it, it should be really about purpose. It should be really about culture and, and taking into account the good fortune and then finding ways to make that good fortune someone else's good fortune. So I, I think that that's woven into our ideas as a culture and creating great things has to be that. Um, that philosophy, is uh, it's more than work, and we, there's a gratefulness to that and values that, um, that live out that create um, personal and professional market value. So. I would um, I would agree, and I, but I would add that with a caveat that um, have you read your friend Jacqueline's book, The Blue Sweater? I had uh, a two-hour launch with her yesterday. She's a very close friend. Yes, um, she's right around the corner. Yep. Uh, I, I've I've only spent a little bit of time in Africa, but but not much. But you know, certainly know the third world well from mm-hmm. living in the Dominican Republic, yep. spending time in Haiti. Yep. And as you're giving back, please don't just give back. Give back with strings, or make sure that people are, yeah. are encouraged to, as you talk about taking risks. They have to take risks, and their risk might be to, to invent something, so they only have to walk three miles to get water instead of six. Yep. And that, to us, looks horrific, but that's the kind of breakthroughs that they need to be figuring out and getting excited about. Yeah, so and I, I don't mean the, I, the, the, spirit of my, the spirit of my point is not that um, we should be feel lucky. I just think that we should feel grateful, and I think that as it relates to Jacqueline, I think her purpose in the Ackerman Fund, um, which we talked about at length yesterday, uh, and I'm, I'm involved with those guys at, at a number of levels, but... Um, they, they, you need to create the, the system, so to speak, and the incentive for that, 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 that 
those enterprises to exist so that they can teach others to fish, so to speak. And so that's coming full circle as we talked about, you know, you know, giving giving back doesn't necessarily mean flying to Africa and painting someone's house. You need to teach them, as I described, you know, that they own the house, that they saved the house, that they built the house, that they pay themselves. The systems, the grid they're built on has to be built. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, that is that point is that they, you know, it's the sense of empowerment, ownership that will really transform those cultures. So, um, you and I have a very similar philosophy. And I also friends with uh, Jacqueline, um, um, Jessica Jackley at, uh, from Kiva as well. And they're extending that same belief in the marketplace as well. So, yeah, um, cool. but it's important. Yeah, and that's, I, I feel pretty what, strongly about it because I've seen a lot of stuff yeah. that hasn't worked. Yep. There's really nice guys that have done really well and just yep. come and give lots of handouts and the people are yep. like, well, you know, yep. I don't have to work. It's easy just to get the yep. handouts. And Millennium Promise is solving that as well. They're creating systems, infrastructure, and commerce. And you know, the one technology to really watch is the mobile device in Africa. I mean, that is an institute of, of uh, commerce and communications and, and, and proprietary type of tools that's really going to could, – could transform significantly. Well, can, I, can I ask, and I know we have to wrap sure. up, um, what's your, what cell phone do you have? I have an iPhone, actually. I used BlackBerry for years. And I switched to an so iPhone about two years let, ago. Let me, let me just respond to that. I've yeah. actually just switched from uh, iPhone to BlackBerry. Did uh, you go back, a, huh? Just bought a BlackBerry. And, well, I'm, I see, I don't see, see this going back. I feel like I'm going forward, at least for where I'm living right now, because over here, um, BlackBerry's plan where you can text for free is means that with all of your closest friends, you can suddenly now text for free. Now, for you and I, texting is not, not an expensive cost that we're concerned about. But for local people here... It, it, that matters enough so they'd rather have the BlackBerry BlackBerry plan and, and use that. And so down here, your BlackBerry becomes your computer. And so exactly when you're talking about mobile, um, BlackBerry's here are a really big deal. It's not iPhones because the, the text cost is too high. Yeah, well, you know, the, I I am committed to user experience first. I mean, I, mean, I think you're, you're describing an um, infrastructure problem or a pricing problem at the handset level or the, the network level. And I, I have a feeling that the telecoms are one of the, the great uh, challenges of any good successful marketplace. But you know, I'm I I want to be completely and you know committed to a, you know, one of the companies that's the best in the world at user experience. And so uh, the nuance of behavior and user experience and kind of the beauty that happens in iPhone is more is really really important for our culture to be engaged with, so we can understand yeah. the user experience. So it's a, it's an important part of our growth. Makes sense. Okay, um, David. Thanks very much for the time. Yeah, I've loved, uh, really loved it, and I uh, hope we have uh, lots of reasons to stay in touch. And um, hopefully, if I can be helpful to you and get other great speakers, I'd love to do that. Uh, I know a lot of people who would be um, uh, would be great uh, contributors to to your efforts. Thanks very much. Of course.